It's great to see you. Uh, I mean, I can't really see you very well. I'm imagining you. I'm picturing you here. I, um, I, miss you seeing, I miss seeing you in this place. I'm getting used to speaking to a camera, and I'm not sure I like that. Um, but I'm glad that you've joined us this morning for worship and pray that this is a powerful experience for you. I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a letter that Paul writes. It's about the middle of the New Testament. It looks like 1 Corinthians 15. There's a Bible app that is connected to our online stream right now. And so you can choose that little Bible tab and you can type in 1 Corinthians 15. Or you can pull out a Bible and turn there. That would be great. We'll get to that in just a minute. Secondly, there's a Get Connected tab or a little button that I hope you'll, you'll, you'll hit. If you were with us in a traditional gathering here at Emmaus and this is your first time, you would have already been greeted by multiple people. We would have directed you to a beautiful spread of food in the cafe. We would have offered you coffee and then we would have sent you home and we'll send you home in a few minutes with a bag of freshly roasted coffee beans from our friends at Valiant Coffee and Loomis. Um, and uh, we can't do any of that which is a bummer, but if you let us know that you're tuning in, that you're participating with us, we can try to welcome you in the forms and structures that we have available to us. So there's that Get Connected button. And then there's a chat button as well. Uh, Angela is manning the chat feature. Um, And so if you want to interact with what's said today or ask questions or offer comments, please do so. She will interact with you there in the chat bar. And then finally, if you have kids... Before we're done today here, uh, you'll get an email in your inbox from the Emmaus Kids Ministry team, and it will include videos where the team is greeting your kids and offering some inspirational um, stories and comments and encouragement. I just encourage you to participate in that. Let's keep our kids connected um, in this season as best we can. All right. Good. Well, last Sunday we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a truth that we celebrate, in a sense, every single Sunday, right? Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. Last Sunday, this is what we are into. Of course, every year on Easter Sunday, uh, we have this special buildup, right? This special anticipation that we bring a special level of passion to our celebration of Easter. But this year, in this cultural context, the celebration of, our resurre- of the resurrection against this backdrop against which we, de- you know, this, this unusual time and place it was the context of our declaration that he is risen. It was very, very different from any Easter Sunday in my lifetime. I don't remember anything quite like this, probably different from every Easter celebration in your lifetime as well. And that brought up all kinds of practical external questions. How do we gather the church for Easter when we can't gather, when it's forbidden to gather, right? And, and then there were questions that we addressed on a family level. Like, what do we do with the big Easter traditions of our families? Can, what, how do we modify those things? Can any of them actually happen? What do we do for dinner this year, for the big Easter dinner, which is for many of us a place where a lot of people gather and share food? So there were all these logistical challenges, all the planning that needed to be scrapped and reworked because the whole cultural context of Easter was changed. And then below those surface, practical, important, but surface external questions was a whole nother level of deeper internal questions like this. Like, how does the resurrection of Christ affect my life now? Right? Now. 
now that I'm back living at home with my parents, or now that I've been furloughed from my job, or now that I'm working harder than I've ever worked before, but so many of the structures are gone, everything feels so less efficient and more frustrating. Questions like, does Jesus' resurrection actually affect my life when my life is different from it was a month ago, when my life is characterized by disappointment, when my life is characterized by this new kind of sadness, this weird void, this deep loneliness, this longing for others as I feel disconnected from people that I've shared life with intimately for years and years. Does Jesus' resurrection actually affect my life here, now? Easter celebrations have been, for most of us, for most of our lives, these happy, flower-filled beautiful springtime weather in Northern California celebrations. Easter means full churches and full tables. Someone told me last week that she and her sister dressed up for Easter because that's what you do. You dress up for Easter. But then they opened the computer and went to church. And that's, that's the picture of where we are right now. That's, that's what we're doing. So it's the same message The message is, hallelujah, Christ is risen. But we're hearing that message against a very different cultural context. We're hearing that message against a very different cultural climate than most of us have ever experienced before. And at the most basic level, the question that everyone is asking is a profound question, even though it is a remarkably simple question. The question is this, now what? Now what? And one of the things that I'm so grateful for in this season is that we are part of a faith tradition. It's called the Historic Christian Church, which has been in situations like this before. So we can learn from our own history in moments like this. We can begin with the Bible itself, which includes several stories of people trying to answer the what now question in the days following the very first Easter Sunday. We find ourselves in great company this morning. We just celebrated Easter. Now the flowers are wilted. It's it's back to sort of post-Easter time. Now what? The message was, hallelujah, Christ is risen, but no one knows exactly the details of how Christ's resurrection is going to shape real life now and here. Last week, we talked about the Emmaus Road Travelers. They run back to their pain. They run back to their community. They run back to Jerusalem. They run back to the crisis where they gather with other disciples who declare it is true. Christ has risen and has appeared to Simon. But then in John's gospel, he says, but then they lock the doors because they're afraid of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? Everything has changed except we're going to still lock the doors because we're still in a broken world. We're still in a place where we're not exactly sure how the reality of the resurrection intersects with a broken, diseased, disastrous cultural context. So for the next several weeks, we're going to study the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And we're going to simply look at the lessons that we can take from those who, like us, celebrated Jesus' resurrection, but then needed to figure out what it looked like to live in a broken world in light of the resurrection. What it meant to live in a world that was so deeply saturated in sin and in sadness and in death in light of the fact that Jesus just triumphed over all of that. It's all been defeated, right? 
So this series of sermons is called, Now What? Lessons from the Post-Resurrection Appearances of Jesus. Two questions. First, the what appearances? Yeah, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Did you know that the Bible says that Jesus was killed and that Jesus was buried and then that Jesus rose again? And did you know that the Bible records many stories of people interacting with Jesus after he came back to life? Talking with Jesus, having a meal with Jesus, seeing Jesus walking on the beach. How do you, second question, how do you find these stories? Because these sound fascinating. Well, you go to the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. You read to the end, and you're going to read about how Jesus was killed, and you're going to read about how Jesus rose again, specifically in Matthew, Luke, and John. Then you're going to read all these stories about people encountering Jesus after he rose from the dead. The first of those stories are Jesus being witnessed by women at the tomb, and I'm going to talk about that next Sunday because that's fascinating. But in addition to what the gospel writers write down, there's this fascinating paragraph written in at the end of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Paul writes several letters to the Corinthian church. Two of them are included in scripture. The first is called 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 15, after addressing a whole host of real-life community disastrous issues in their church, Paul begins to point them towards the truth, and this is what he writes at the beginning of chapter 15. Paul writes, For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then he appeared to the twelve after that, he appeared to more than, a, more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul is saying two things here primarily. First thing he's saying is, here's my message. Here's my message. I passed on to you what I received. Jesus died for our sins, then Jesus was buried, and then Jesus rose on the third day. That's the gospel. Okay, that's the good news. This is the truth that has been handed down to me, Paul says, and this is the core message of what I preach everywhere I go. This is a first importance. I'm going to say a whole lot of stuff about how to live your life. It's all rooted in this. This is the good news. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and then Jesus rose again. Paul says, that's my message. That's my message. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is, and my message is verifiable. It is verifiable, okay? This Jesus who died, who was buried, and who rose again on the third day, he appeared to people after he came back to life. There are witnesses to the resurrection, and Paul lists some of them here. It's not even a full list, but he lists some of them here. Christ appeared to Kephas, which is Aramaic for Peter. Kephas means rock. Peter means rock in Greek. This is the rock. Peter's the rock in any language, right? They're referring to him different languages. Paul often refers to Peter with the Aramaic, with Kephas. He appeared to the rock, and then he appeared to the 12, which is a reference to Jesus' 12 Disciples, it's interesting, it's 12. It must also include Matthias at this point, right? 
Maybe he's there. Maybe he hasn't been instituted yet as a, as a follow-up for Judas who is gone. After that, Paul says, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother, who does not follow Jesus during Jesus' life and ministry, but converts to a follower of Jesus after Christ's resurrection and then becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then he appears to all the apostles. This is a reference to 70 or 72 people who were uh, um, like called into ministry personally by Jesus. And then Paul says, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born, really strange phrase. Basically what he's saying is, I was born at the wrong time. Uh, Paul's essentially saying, when Jesus was alive and ministering and giving life, I didn't receive life from him. I was his enemy then. I didn't get it. I missed it. So in his goodness, Jesus waited to a point in my life when I could receive his life, and then he gave me his life. I was born abnormally, right? Powerful. It's Paul's way of saying, Jesus appeared to me too. I didn't deserve it. There's a lot of self-depreciation here in what he's saying. He's trying to say, look, I was an enemy of Jesus, but Jesus appeared to me. I was arresting Christians, but Jesus appeared to me. I'm not saying I'm like James and Peter, but I am saying he appeared to me too. It's powerful. All right, I want to focus this morning on verse 6, where Paul writes, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I've titled this message, More Than 500, which is in reference to this claim from Paul. There is only this one reference to this event. It's the only information we have about this event is what Paul writes in this one sentence. This is literally all we know about this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. But there are two details in what Paul shares that are so powerful to me. First, this is an event in which Jesus appears to those who are outside his inner circle, okay? Outside the inner circle. At the time of Jesus' death, there's about 100, 120 followers of Jesus. And in the accounts of Paul and others, including Matthew, Luke, and John, after Jesus rises from the dead, he appears to people in his inner circle. Peter, Thomas, the disciples. That's awesome. But it doesn't quite communicate the same message as what Paul is saying here, does it? Because what Paul is referring to here is an, an event where over 500 men and women see the resurrected Jesus at the same time. And it doesn't matter what culture you're in or when you're alive, 500 people is a whole lot of witnesses. That's a whole lot of people seeing the same thing at the same time. Some people write off the resurrection of Jesus as a hallucination. However, it is, it is just absolutely um, inaccurate to imagine that that's possible because there's never been a, a, a there's, people don't have the exact same hallucination at the same time. There's 500 people who are seeing the same thing at the same time here. That's a whole lot of eyewitnesses. So established historic record from multiple sources tells us that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross when Pontius Pilate was governor of, of um, Rome. No. Yes. Jerusalem. Thanks. A little mind blank. So a lot of people witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. A lot of people witnessed the the condemnation of Jesus. A lot of people witnessed the torturous walk to the cross. 
that Jesus took. Paul is saying after Jesus rose from the dead, there was one time when he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. So the first powerful detail that Paul is pointing out is that after Jesus died, a whole lot of people witnessed Jesus' resurrection, including hundreds of people who were not even in Jesus' inner circle. They probably weren't even followers of Jesus at that time though Paul now refers to them as brothers and sisters, which seems to indicate that when you, resur- when, you, when you see the resurrected Jesus, you become convinced, right? Because now it appears that these people are followers of Jesus. The second thing that Paul says about this event that is powerful to me is that most of them are still alive. In other words, Paul is saying, you don't believe me? Well, there are hundreds of people you could ask about this. There are hundreds of people you could ask. I love hearing kids tell stories of what they've accomplished and what they've done and all the adventures that they've accomplished and had with their friends because they're often stories that are characterized by just a little bit or a lot of exaggeration, right? How high they jumped on their bike. Oh, I had so much air, right? How fast they were going on their skateboard, how big the fish was that they caught. And so one kid will be telling this big story and another kid will say, nuh-uh. And then the first kid will say, uh-huh. And then the second kid will say, nuh-uh. And the first kid will say, uh-huh even ask my mom, right? That's what they say. You can ask my mom, which apparently holds a lot of clout because it usually just ends the debate right there because mom is standing right there in the kitchen, okay? And so she witnessed it. So you can even ask my mom, all right, that puts an end to it, right? I'll appeal to the mom witness, okay? Even ask my mom, which apparently that just takes care of it. She's right there. She's the witness, So if you don't believe me, you just ask my mom. She's going to clear it all up for you, right? Paul is saying Jesus came back to life, and then he appeared to over 500 people at one time. Most of them are still living. You can ask them. Some of them, he says, have fallen asleep. And I love this. This is Paul's way of referring to Christians who have died. Did you know that? Yeah, Paul says those who believe in the erection will live even though they die. Paul teaches that death does not have the final word, Paul is so thoroughly affected by the reality of the resurrection that he doesn't talk about Christians dying. And he's not denying that life leaves their body, but he simply refers to that experience as they're falling asleep, which is a clear implication of a next truth, which is they will come back to life again, right? They will rise again. They will be resurrected. So that, I think, is the power of what of what Paul is writing here. It's it's this impressive list of post-resurrection appearances of Christ, including those outside the inner circle. You can't write this off as like, hey, wink, wink, let's say it happened. No, this is people outside the inner circle witness the resurrected Jesus. And if you don't believe Paul, you can go ask them. This is something Paul's initial audience could have easily done because there's hundreds of normal people walking around who personally witnessed Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Clearly, what Paul is saying here is massively important. This is his message, and it is verifiable. Let me point out one more thing to you that's captured my attention. This short section of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, is one of the portions of the Bible that has received the most scrutiny and the most attention by theologians, scholars, historians, and archaeologists over the last hundred years. They have focused on this passage from Corinthians more than almost any passage that I'm aware of in the New Testament, and it's not just because of what Paul says 
here, it's because what Paul says here, he says, was passed down to him from someone else. Until about a hundred years ago, follow me here, until about a hundred years ago, scholars believed that Paul had written these words, that when Paul writes, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that these were just, these were Paul's words. Paul's just writing this out. For almost 2,000 years, scholars thought that what Paul meant when he said this was passed on to me was that he learned these truths in a more general sense from others in the church. But a hundred years ago, this little fragment of material was discovered in an archaeological dig that included a creedal formula that predated the writings of Paul. Okay? And it confirmed that Paul received this essential and established Christian belief that Christ died, that Christ was buried, and that Christ was raised again. And that those were the essential Christian beliefs passed on one to another in the Christian church. In other words, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the year 49 AD. 49 AD. But he's quoting a source that all scholars agree is at least 10 years old in 49. So Paul is quoting this creedal statement that is used as part of an early Christian catechism, early instruction on what Christians believed and how Christians should live. And this early creedal statement, some believe, was in use within months of Jesus's resurrection, middle to late 30s. So the fact that Paul is quoting an already 10-year-old Christian creed is a really, really big deal. Dr. Justin Bass, he's a New Testament professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He writes this, This apostolic creedal statement is unparalleled in the New Testament. In fact, it's unparalleled in all of ancient literature. Even if, get this, even if nothing else had survived from the early Christian movement besides this five-verse creedal tradition, in other words, even if we didn't have any more of the New Testament except what Paul writes here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, Dr. Bass says we'd still have the essence of the gospel and the historical bedrock on which Christianity stands, which is that God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses of that fact. And part of what this shows is that even in the earliest days of the church, a few decades that are covered by the book of Acts, followers of Jesus are being instructed with a core set of beliefs. One person would pass on to another person what they themselves had received, and this was the way that they would share the faith, right? This is the way they would educate one another. They would pass on these beliefs in the form of these pithy, short, creedal statements, these creeds. Realize that when Paul is planting churches all over the known world, there is no New Testament yet. The letters that he writes to these churches, they become much of the New Testament. So when Paul refers to the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. What Jesus' followers are using to categorize their, their uh, beliefs, their distinctly Christian convictions are songs and sayings and prayers and creeds. 
And these songs and sayings and prayers and creeds served as the curriculum of the formation of early Christians. This is how they learned what Christians believed, and this is how they learned how Christians should live. In light of their cultural context, this is how Christians believed what difference the resurrection made in light of what was happening in their culture, the brokenness all around them. Friends, this is how they learned the answer to the question, now what? This was their catechism, which is an ancient word that appears several times in Paul's letters, which simply refers to a way of learning the faith. The, the, like the history of the word, the core of the word is the same word from which we get the word echo. It's as if heaven has spoken and we echo the voice of heaven to one another going forward. A catechism was a simple conversational method of learning the way of life. And we're starting one at Emmaus in May. And we're super excited about it. We've adapted ancient sources and we put together a discipleship process for our church community. We're calling it the way of life. And the first section covers the Apostles' Creed, which is one of the earliest, fuller Christian creeds. We're planning to start weekly discussion-based meetings via Zoom the first week of May. And then we look forward to transitioning these meetings into homes as soon as possible. And I hope that every single person in our church will participate in this, from the youngest to the oldest, because this is essential theological and practical lifestyle training. And if you'd like to be a part of this first round that's beginning in May, please fill out the form that is on our website. You can look for The Way of Life on our website. We'll also drop it into the chat bar, a link to that in the chat bar here in just a minute. Please sign up by April 30th because we're going to begin in May. All right? Friends, our cultural climate has changed. This pandemic and the ripple effects of its impact on our world, it will continue to change our lives. It will continue to shape our lives. But in the midst of all of this disorienting change, is a timeless truth, is a bedrock reality, is a strong foundation on which we can build our lives. When everything else is revealed to be fragile, Christ has died, and Christ was buried, and Christ was raised again on the third day. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Amen? May the truth of the resurrection be the foundation on which we build our lives, be the answer to our question, now what? As we look at the world changing all around us, may we return to these bedrock truths. The earliest Christian truth handed down systematically and intentionally through the church from the beginning that Christ has died, he was buried, and he rose again. This is the message. This is what we hold on to. May God give us the grace that we need to recognize this truth and to live in light of this truth as the world changes all around us. Amen. God, please bless my brothers and sisters who are gathered in their homes today. Fill them with a sense of hope that is rooted in you. Some of us have faced overwhelming news this week. And uh, it's causing us to be so preoccupied um, and distracted. We, we're not even sleeping. Um, and I pray, this is now real life. This is it. So I pray, God, may the resurrection of your son Christ pierce through whatever 
form we have created to establish some sense of comfort for our own lives. May it just break through that. May this become, as it has always truly been, the absolute true foundation of our lives. May we adjust everything else around this. We ask for grace, Lord. We need it. Please help your church today, all around the world, including in this town. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite you to take a minute to greet those that you're gathering with in your homes. Look them right in the eye. Tell them that you love them and remind them that there is peace in Christ. May the peace of Christ be always with you, friends.